Welcome to Gravy Jones's Locker, the finest gravy establishment in all the Southeast, excluding Pillion and certain parts of North Carolina. How many in your party? Uh, no, I'm I'm here for the Swarmcast. I'm I'm a regular. Irregular? Well, we do have a cream-based gravy that should fix that right up for you. I, uh, no, no, no. Um, I'm a regular, not irregular. Oh, I see. Then maybe you shouldn't be wearing a shirt that proclaims your gastrointestinal distress right above your heart. I... what? No, 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 no. This shirt is from a convention. I think it's supposed to mean I work for Sherlock Holmes or something like that. That Cumberbatch guy or Basil Rathborn? Neither. I, I don't... I don't actually work for... You know what? Forget it. It, it was the only shirt I had clean this morning. Uh, it seems that some mysteriously devious individual has replaced all the clothing detergent in my town with non-sudsing potato flakes. Yar. Yeah. But back to the point. I, I'm here to see Toast. Oh, Toast, you say? Arr, he be in the back. All right, uh, thanks. Yar and all that piratey stuff. The Swarmcast Podcast is recorded, mixed, and produced on the poop deck of Gravy Jones Locker in the heart of Columbia, South Carolina. On the show, we talk about the gaming hobby and random fandom. Opinions on this show are... It is Caleb. Calvin. Calvin. It's Caleb from this point on. Let me try, let me try again. I'm Toast, your cobalt announcer. And now, prepare to delve into the mind of your host... John Minas! We got a great show for you today. Joe Mendignello takes the Rat Burger Challenge. <laughs> Drac, I mean Dracula, sorry, you guys don't know him that well. He interviews and then he eats some of the guys from FFG. Hmm. And then Tim's gonna put Robin Laws in a dungeon. <laughs> I sure can't wait to hear how this... Ah. <sighs> Who am I kidding? I can't do this. Hey, Toast, how's it going, buddy? Oh, well, well, well. If it isn't Swarmcast Podcast, we'll own Calvin. What have you been up to? Oh, not much, man. I'm feeling a little better, though. I'm getting going on a diet. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, it's kind of hard cutting out sugar and, and bread for the most part, but, uh, you know. Oh, I can do that. I pretty much eat whatever I can get my paws on. Well, it's a lot of meat. Yeah, so. I do that, too. Whatever, oh, okay. Meat. Yeah, yeah. Meat, meat's good. Just no pasta, and no sugar. It's, it's not too bad. Ugh, that sounds, that sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. Except for all the meat part. I guess I could give it up. You could try making pasta out of meat, I guess. I, maybe some meat out of bread. I, bread, bread meat. Bread. I could use meatloaf. There you go. As bread. You're part right there. My, this is gonna happen. I'm going to do this, Toast. That's yeah. a great idea. You could have a meatloaf sandwich that uses meatloaf as the bread, as the bread instead of yes. bread. And then you put meatloaf on it. Yeah, I like it. A lot of mayonnaise. Uh, yeah, I mean, I 
Some ketchup? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Put, put a little I ketchup on that, too. You could just make the ketchup and the mayonnaise out of, out of a meatloaf, too. Uh, maybe. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. But, yeah, definitely thinking of it. This might happen. <laughs> so, um, what about you, Toast? What have you been up to, buddy? Uh, uh, you know, been working on keeping this show together. Trying to figure out where John went to. You know, he left some cryptic riddles and some clues on how to find him. But I've kind of had my paws busy. Oh, uh, well, what kind of clues? Huh? Uh, I don't know. I just threw all that stuff out. Huh? Uh, well, um, how's it going, you know, hosting the show then? Oh, it's been pretty rough, actually. I'm used to editing this junk, not, you know, recording this junk. You know, it's hard to be snarky when it's just me. I mean, who wants to hear me overdub talking to myself? I mean, even if I use some sort of silly voice, it would just be, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I, I can't imagine. Hey, wait a minute. Calvin's here. Hmm. Hey, so, would you like to host the show? <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's really easy. Sure it is. Uh, you just say something dumb. I'm pretty sure you can do that. And then I just make fun of you. And then we, you know, we play some segments and stuff like that. Uh, well, I'm never at a lack for saying something dumb, uh, Toast, but I don't think it's really my style. I, I just came to drop off some of these reel-to-reels John left at my place. He recorded some segments on them, I guess. Reel-to-reels? Uh, what the heck? I know, right? Everything's all digital these days, except for, you know, what John does. Uh, well, I guess he's got some vinyl or some cassettes, too, but, you know. Ah, uh, freaking hipsters! Uh, so, well, you know, good luck with this. It's, uh, I'll just put these right over here by the eight tracks? What the? Yeah, great. How am I gonna do this whole hosting thing? Uh, you know, I thought that was what you wanted, Toast. You know, all those times you talked about secret desires to deviously undermine and eventually replace John as the host? Oh, yes, it was a fine dream to be sure, but well, now that he's gone... Well, look, uh, I need to go. Why don't you, you know, just do what John would do? Oh, oh, yeah, take lots of naps? Uh, no, I... Look, just do what you know needs to be done. You know, take the initiative. Oh, yeah. You know, you're right, Calvin. John wouldn't give up. No, would he? No, see, you got this. He'd, well, he'd dig on in and he'd roll up his sleeves and, uh... There you go. I believe in you, buddy. Yeah, and then he would steal somebody else's idea. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? You'll figure it out. I, I've got to get going, though. Just I, I gotta go, um, you know, somewhere. Not here. <sighs> Whatever. Ah, oh, see you later, Calvin. Now, I just need to get Dr. F on Skype. Herr Dr. F is indisposed right now. Please leave a message and he will get back to you. Hey, Doc, it's me, Toast. Remember that rock and roll pumpkin that you made for me last October? Well, he was great. Yeah, he made a great rock and roll pumpkin pie, if you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway... Go ahead and scrap that whole zombie Bruno Mars project from earlier. The pitch on that guy was way too high. Um, so I'm going to email you some information. I need you to make a podcast host for... Oh, hold on a second. What's this? Plastic Beach by the Gorillas. Who doesn't sell that? Oh, wait a minute. That gives me an idea. Hey, Doc, forget what I said about, like, cloning anybody or anything like that. 
Here's what I need you to do. Make an evil robot version of John. Yeah, yeah. Hit me up later and we'll discuss the deets. Alright, gotta go. Bye. Boom. Now I just need to pad out the time with some segments. Hey, Toast, what's behind this door? It's the designer's dungeon! Oh, yeah. you didn't. Yes, I sure did! Ah, <laughs> uh, Toast. Locked him up. I didn't mean actually keep designers yeah. in the dungeon. Well, it's too bad. They're there. Well, let's go talk to them. Yeah, <laughs> they're making, like, rough them up or something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Designer's Dungeon. I am here with someone you probably all know, Robin D. Laws. Uh, you all know him from our... Games from Around the World segment, uh, he was the designer of the King in Yellow role-playing game. Uh, yes, or the Yellow King role-playing game. Oh, I'm as, sorry. As technically, we call it. We, we, we threw you a fastball or a curveball on that one. <laughs> and you've also done other games as well, yes? Uh, yes, Feng Shui, Hill Folk, which won the Diana Jones Award, Esoterrorist, uh, which is the first of the gumshoe games. Uh, the Yellow King role-playing game is also a gumshoe game, so the Dying Earth. And the Guy in Reach is sort of a follow-up game from that that merges the Dying Earth system with the Gumshoe system. So yeah, lots of different games over since about 1992. So you've been busy. Yes. Uh, well, I uh, this has been my job since around then. And uh, the secret to uh, making a living as a freelancer in the games industry is to be busy. You have to be uh, very prolific. And you've not only just des- written four games, you've also designed a system too, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, Feng Shui and Gumshoe and The Dying Earth, uh, those are all system designs. And you mentioned that you're a freelancer. What, for those who might not know exactly what that is, can you kind of just go into, and, into it and just let us give a brief description of what that is? Right. So uh, rather than working full-time for any given company, I am available for hire to whatever client wants to hire me to do things. And that means that over the years I've done uh, not just tabletop role-playing games, but I've worked on a couple of mobile games like King of Dragon Pass, and it's soon to be released a long-awaited follow-up Six Ages, and written like eight novels and a book of short stories. And so I've done a whole bunch of stuff over the years. I've had a long-standing relationship with Palgrain Press. They're the company that I did the Esoterrorists and Hillfolk and the Yellow King uh, game with. So I'm sort of, you know, I, I attend summit meetings and stuff, but I'm not a full-time employee of Palgrain. I'm still self-employed. So how does it work to be a freelancer? Do you go to companies and say, hey, I have an idea. Will you publish it or do they come to you or is it a little bit of both? Um, it's mostly the second, that you will be approached by uh, a company that's looking for somebody to write something in particular, and then you will write according to the specs that they give you. Occasionally, I will be asked for pitches for ideas, and so it does wind up being a mix of stuff. But especially when you're first starting out, you're going to be working on other people's stuff, and then as you gain more of a reputation – Someone will come to you and say, well, we have a whole role-playing game with this theme that I would like you to do. Uh, so, for example, the, when I did the Dying Earth game, Simon Rogers, who was then the sole publisher uh, at Pelgrane, now there's uh, two publishers, he got the uh, license to Jack Vance's Dying Earth stories, and he said, I would like someone to design the bulk of the book. I've already found somebody to do the magic rules, but I would like 
uh, someone else to do the rest of the book. And he came to me on the recommendation of another publisher. Uh, so that's another tip if you're thinking of being a freelancer is you get work based on the fact that people who are looking for freelancers talk to each other. And so if you burn one publisher, you're uh, going to be actually burning a lot of future clients who you otherwise wouldn't get. So you always want to be impressing people with your punctuality, delivering stuff on deadline and the quality of, of your work and uh, how congenial you are to deal with because there are, are maybe a couple of people who are difficult and their stuff is worth the difficulty that they require to deal with but mostly chances are no <laughs> because there are also some people who are uh, extremely skilled and very congenial so you're you're competing uh, with that so anyway to to return to what i was saying before simon came to me with this particular assignment just happened that i love jack vance he's my favorite fantasy author by far and so i delivered that series of specs to him and then later on he said well i would like a new game that solves some of the problems in investigative role-playing, uh, particularly the problem of what happens when you make a role and fail to get the information you need to progress into the story. And that's why I created Gumshoe and the Esoteris game around that. And now, it turns out that has all sorts of other design implications. That's not the only thing that Gumshoe does. But then having done that and having inspired Simon to then have a whole line of Gumshoe games, later he just said, well, how about some pitches? And so in that case, I pitched him uh, Ashen Stars, which is the space opera gumshoe game. So that was, there was a parameter still on that request is pitch me a new gumshoe game. But then I wound up doing that. But that's a situation where I have a longstanding relationship with the publisher already. If you are thinking that you are going to create a new role-playing game and then find someone else to publish it for you, that is almost certainly not going to happen because <laughs> the sorts of mid-tier companies that publish stuff by freelancers. For example, there, there's a whole lot of, you know, amazing kind of boutique operations where the person designing the game is the person who puts it out. The uh, company res resolve, revolves around a particular designer and designer and what they want to do. But in terms of the sort of uh, mid-tier companies that are your market as a freelancer, they already have more ideas then they know what to do with, and they're looking for people to execute the particular ones of those ideas that seem appealing at that moment. So don't go and write a 200,000-word role-playing game, uh, especially one that is a slight variation on what already exists, and then think that you can market that to someone who will then do all of the annoying work of publishing it, <laughs> that, um, be, that rather you're going to sort of make your bones doing little bits of supplements and source books and then work your way up to the position where you may be tapped to be the lead designer on a new game, which may be a case of they're going, okay, pitch me another game because now that they've worked with you to that extent, they, they trust you and want to work with you more and are looking for your ideas. Or it may be we have this concept and we're looking for someone to be the, the lead designer on it. So, for example, uh, right now with Pelgrane, the core team sort of had an idea of what a new version of Gumshoe was that would fit a particular need that we have. I came up with the core three core concepts for it. Simon and Kat at Pelgrane uh, picked the one they liked, and then Kat had an idea for who the uh, lead designer on that might be, and then, you know, I'm going to collaborate with that person. So um, sometimes you may get, you know, tapped out of the blue to 
design a new thing, but it's not the new thing that you've been working on. It's a new thing that the company feels that they need to do. You mentioned a lot about get, starting getting into it. How would a person like how would a person just start as a freelancer? Like, would it be just submitting some writing or maybe like uh, a sample module that you might have come up with or something? How would you do that? Yeah, uh, that's a great way to do that. The the best way to do that, well, first of all, it's so easy today to make something of your own and get it out there, right? That the self-publishing is very easy, that you could create your own cool new game and then use that as sort of a calling card. Or you could go the more traditional route, uh, which is to sort of make yourself known as a super fan of one particular, the system you like most and want to write for. Make yourself known to them as someone who is interested in that game. Maybe uh, blog about it, write about it. And if you can possibly swing it, go to the major conventions and volunteer to run convention games for them. Because then you are a person to the company that you're wanting to work with and someone who has already done them a solid and already knows the game system. Now, most companies are willing to do a certain amount of development with writers in order to sort of bring them along, especially a lot of companies are trying to diversify the sorts of people who are writing for them to match the new demographic of the people who are coming in and playing so that for a long time, gaming was mostly straight white guys with some straight Asian guys thrown in. But now as gaming begins to match the profile of the people you see on the street in any major city, we want writers who uh, can speak to a breadth of experience as well. So if you are such a person, there, there is definitely a market for people who can bring a new, fresh perspectives into uh, role-playing game writing. So over the years, the, uh, the thing about role-playing writing is that the market expands and contracts. And we're just getting past a period of contraction uh, because for, the, for a long while there, the kind of model of the core game book put out by a mid-tier company followed by a lot of support products kind of ran out of steam. And it's been kind of fallow years for uh, the, the market. But what is happening now, thanks to the big resurgence of uh, D&D, which is in part because of the way that the design of D&D 5 is targeted to a, a new and broader audience, and also uh, probably even more so the growth of streamed games, whether they're video stream or whether they're podcast actual play, uh, have brought in a whole new audience of people who never really figured out before how role-playing works. And now all of a sudden, there's a, the audience has just really exploded. And so when tabletop role-playing is doing well, it kind of floats all boats. And so now they're mid, there are mid-tier companies that are going to be doing better and able to produce more things. They're not going to go back to the uh, the model of the 90s, probably, but there's still more opportunities. So this is a good time to jump in when the barriers have never been lower. And there are all sorts of different ways to make yourself known. If you're looking for, if you love D and D, you know, you can go in through the drive through, you know, sanctioned D and D support system and, uh, and get yourself known directly to an audience now. And, you know, you can bypass the whole issue of, you know, printing and shipping and all of those other things. And of course, Kickstarter is another huge way to make, put yourself out there with uh, something cool that is, important to you and and patreon as well if you're looking to do sort of smaller 
projects that uh, get in front of a specialized audience. And so, you know, there's never been more ways to get into uh, tabletop role-playing writing and and we're in an upswing now. It's not necessarily going to be a permanent upswing because, you know, these things run in cycles, but it's certainly a boom that is uh, at least as big and significant as the original uh, D&D boom uh, back in the early 80s. So it's kind of like a gaming bubble kind of thing, except it doesn't crash as hard. Um, yes, the... Uh, and and part of that is is definitely because of the way that uh, there are so many more ways to get games in front of people. When the entire hobby was dependent on uh, brick and mortar uh, retail, which I still hope can find a way to survive, but is definitely under pressure from uh, stuff like Amazon. But back in that time, you were dependent on the publisher, distributor, retailer model, and you could only get so much stuff through that pipeline and and to people, especially since there's always been a a handful of really great game stores and then a lot of kind of okay ones. Uh, But now uh, with Kickstarter and direct sales, there are so many other ways to get direct to an audience that if something comes along to affect retail, like for example, when the advent of Magic the Gathering and other trading card games came along, that was a big hit to tabletop role-playing that lasted until the uh, D&D 3 and the, the whole OGL movement because for a long while, the retailers only wanted cards and they only and they didn't like role-playing stuff because it didn't turn over as fast as, as trading cards did. And so that was a real, you know, strike to the knee for tabletop gaming. But now with, you know, a bunch of different ways from Amazon to brick and mortar to direct sales all existing all at once, it's less likely that, you know, one big new change coming into the industry is going to affect everything. So as things are getting bigger, they're also getting more diverse in the number of channels that can get to people. And that's also something that will hopefully help the health of the industry. But I've learned never to predict anything. And of course, no golden age ever, ever lasts forever. So one thing you keep mentioning is, is the, uh, the mid-tier companies, what, what is it like the mid-tier companies? So it's like uh, Green Ronin or Cubicle 7 or Pelgrane or Chaosium, which is, f- for the first time in decades, is funded and as uh, a new team who are, who are taking all of the chaos out of the business side, if not the <laughs> creative side. And so basically anything that's not the market leader, right? That, so basically uh, like Pathfinder and D&D. Yeah, and I'm I'm not even sure where it's going to be interesting to see where where Paizo is at, uh, whether they can be considered a market leader or, or mid tier, and it all depends on your definitions, right? But basically, in in the thing about gaming is the biggest game in any category has enormous advantage in that it's much easier to get everybody to play the thing they're already familiar with. So basically, you know. Hasbro, which is a giant corporation that owns Wizards of the Coast, they're they're the top tier. And then uh, whether you consider anyone else to be uh, actually competitive with them or whether everything else with a staff and a consistent line of products is mid-tier is, of course, a matter of, of definition. And the reason that you can certainly freelance for Wizards of the Coast, but uh, they're producing fewer and fewer books these days and letting 
you know, the, the community sort of pick up the slack in terms of support and releasing sort of more flagship titles. And that creates a big opportunity to work on D&D, but not necessarily as a freelancer for uh, Wizards. And you, you also talked about Kickstarter. How would Because I've seen a lot of games out there on Kickstarter that don't seem to go anywhere and a few that just like skyrocket. What would you suggest to someone who is creating a game on Kickstarter? Um, go in with if if you are new to writing and publishing, I would say tread very carefully. It's not something I would do as the first thing that you do as in terms of business or the first thing that you do creatively, unless it's on such a small scale that you can learn your lesson without anything disastrous happening. And of course, there is the threat that what you consider to be a small scale thing could blow up and get you in big trouble because fulfilling a Kickstarter is running a business and it's running a business that unless you're just distributing things electronically is about shipping uh, physical products around, which is not for the faint hearted and can be very expensive. And it also requires you to be really great at time management and to be able to predict when you will actually be able to release something. And of course, there's uh, enormous bad publicity in, involved in creating something that then doesn't come out anywhere near your slated time. So tread very, very carefully. Talk to people who have done successful Kickstarters. Hire them as consultants. Don't just ask them for the favor of sharing their information because they don't have time for that. But if you pay them for their wisdom, they can tell you all sorts of different things that are specific to the category. And, you know, I certainly have all sorts of theories about what makes a good uh, or strong Kickstarter. But a big part of that is already having an established uh, reputation or failing that a really great idea. And so it's something that is enormously powerful, but also very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, certainly there have been a lot of people who go in with more hope than planning and uh, and get burned. So even so, I would say, like for example, now that Patreon is a thing, start with that, build up your community on Patreon, show that you can deliver, learn to deliver uh, on a schedule, and get more of a sense of when you can, you know, how quickly you work, how much time it takes if you're dealing with collaborators, and what happens when your collaborators let you down, and then from there treat Kickstarter as sort of the, the next stage later on, because that's a higher reward, higher risk option. Now, another option would be to go through drive through RPG, because that's a place you can put game. I've met a few people who put games up there, but they haven't gotten a whole lot of publicity or whatnot. Is that also an option to do? And maybe do yes, that absolutely. With, um, do that with it, the it, Patreon? Uh, yeah, especially if you've got, if what you're doing is like the very popular things on drive-thru, that's a great place to start because the the barrier for entry is basically non-existent and your uh, the cost of, you know, the, the risks involved are very low. So you might even want to do that first, then Patreon, then uh, Kickstarter. And of course, having work available on Patreon or on drive-thru means that when a company that does hire people is looking for you, you have... Uh, an example of your work that you can show them because your sort of online presence or your work as a, a volunteer GM for whatever that can give people who are looking to hire a sense of you, but obviously they have to see your work and know that it's close enough to good to be worth working with you. So 
you're also looking uh, not just to teach yourself the ropes, but to build your skills as a writer and designer over time. Now, you've worked with different game systems and all that. Do you, how much of the systems do you have to know to actually write for them, or do they just give you like a basic rundown of what you need to know? It depends on what you're doing. But, you know, if you're doing you know, a little sort of adventure and not, doesn't have much rules impact, you can sometimes get away with just sort of reading the rules. But the, if you're writing a full-length adventure or if you're asked to write anything that involves actual game mechanics and, you know, new feats or spells or, you know, vehicles or whatever it is in that system, you really have to play that game. And as someone who sometimes consults on or develops other people's work, I can always tell when the writer hasn't run role-playing games with their group for a long time. It's like, oh, it's been several years since you've run a role-playing game because you've forgotten a lot of the crucial stuff about an adventure. So, for example, oh, here you've written, the bad guy gets away from them in this scene. It's like, uh, that doesn't work in this system. That also almost never works in role-playing. And, or you've forgotten that to provide a way for all of the information that you're writing about and putting on the page to get to the player. So if you are not able to consistently run a game for your own group and test the stuff that you're playing so that if, you know, if you're hired to work on, you know, say Savage Worlds, you got to play Savage Worlds because there are subtleties of that of any particular design that are going to trip you up if you just think you know how it works from reading it. And so that's the number one thing about role-playing writing is you have to be playing. And if you're not doing that, it's going to show. So play the games that you're writing about. Absolutely, you have to. It's, it's uh, mandatory. Now, is it, is it the writing for the different systems and the different settings, is, it like, is there a great difference between the styles of writing? Uh, yes, every game has its own uh, sort of prose style and also a style of play that they're trying to promote. And so there are things that are, you know, even between different variants of D&D, there will be different approaches to what you want to do in an adventure. For example, in 13th Age, which is the D20 variant that Pelgrane Press publishes i wrote an adventure for that where an advantage of one scene was that you are able to avoid a particular fight and uh, rob hainso the developer came back to me and said no in 13th age fights are the reward you never want to avoid a fight in this game well there's certainly been other versions of DD over the years where the idea is that oh yeah some fights you will want to avoid um and so that's a subtlety of difference even within games that are superficially extraordinarily similar so you now that is something sort of a high level thing that you might only notice when you're working with the developer but even then you know 13th age has a really sort of loosey-goosey kind of approach earlier versions of D&D have been sort of very uh, technical the new version is as again kind of looser but it's not written in the same sort of personalized style that 13th age is uh, some games are written in a fictional voice which I uh, think is fun if done very lightly and unbearable if <laughs> if done extensively. But 
if you are writing for a game that is written in a fictional voice, you got to write in that voice. You can't say, oh, well, I don't really like that approach. I'm not going to do that in this chapter. It's like, oh, yeah, you sure are. You know, you're going to have to learn to to get that voice. And everybody, and in a way, you're kind of reflecting the personality and the writing style of the the lead designer who sort of set that tone out. And people are looking for your ability to match tone uh, just as much as they are your ability to get the mechanics right or to know the continuity of the world, for example. So when you're going into a a project, have you ever, like, refused a job because you didn't feel comfortable writing for it or you didn't think you could copy the voice? Uh, There's, for example, someone approached me once to work on a creature book that's based on a video game. It's like, oh, I, I just don't know the source material. And so now the main reason I turn down work is that I'm too busy, that, you know, I, I've usually got a bunch of big things on the go. And also I, I look at the amount of research I'm going to have to do versus how big the project is and how many words it is and whether it's actually worth it to, you know, read 600,000 words of a game line in order to write 10,000 words of material for it. But when you're starting out, you can't be quite that choosy. But definitely don't try to write for a game you don't like and make sure that you're keeping an eye on how much work is really going to be entailed uh, once you factor in the amount of playing you're going to have to do and the uh, amount of uh, material you're going to have to familiarize yourself with before you write. So basically, you pace yourself and kind of know what you're getting into before you accept a job. Right. Now, the most important thing is scheduling. If you have a deadline, uh, meet that deadline. That's I always tell people the main things about freelance writing are be on time and be good in that order. It's if you And if you find yourself in the weeds, if you realize that you're going to be late, don't spring that on your publisher or developer at the last minute. Tell them as soon as you have the feeling that you might be late because then they can make plans and work around. But if the deadline comes or the deadline comes and goes and they have to chase you to find out what's going on and then they discover that your cat was sick or your uh, basement flooded or you, you're, you lost your computer hard drive or whatever it is, then that's trouble, right? Because you've thrown off their schedule. Whereas, you know, if you tell them as soon as your basement floods or your cat uh, destroys your hard drive, then they can start to work around that and make different plans and maybe move up a different thing or possibly get someone else in to sort of take over the burden. So people often are very embarrassed to admit that they're in the weeds, but it's much, much more embarrassing and worse if you then blow the deadline and the the developer has to chase you. So if it looks like there's any kind of problem that you're having, Talk to your developer or publisher. They want to hear from you. They want to know in advance, and they want to know as soon in advance as as you can possibly do it. So basically, just keep them informed of what's going on. Absolutely, and and you would think that would be obvious, but of course, once you <laughs> once you get in the weeds, you think, oh well, I can just get out of this without, you know, getting uh, embarrassed, and you know, especially if you're having a difficult time emotionally, it can be hard to see through that and you sort of imagine oh no they'll be mad at me if if i tell them but of course the the opposite is is true if you tell them soon enough hey everyone so this interview with robin goes on a bit longer and just to save time i've had to cut it in half so in the next episode we will be talking about the creative process and we have a special treat for you at the end 
Podcast at Gmail dot Partner, why don't I pour you a sarsaparilla? It's about high noon here in the Swarmcast Saloon. Never mean only one thing. It's about time for a quick draw. Bang bang! Bang bang! Bang bang! Bang bang bang! Hey everyone, this is Ruby. We're at Firefly Toys and Games. Today is Free RPG Day. And we actually just ran one of the free RPG uh, quick starts that was available in 2018's kit called Unknown Armies, Maria and Three Parts. I had some really interesting uh, players here. It's a quick start by Atlas Games. Um, It was a pretty easy game to pick up and learn in prep time. It only took me maybe an hour or so to read through it the first time, and then I reread it a second time uh, to kind of go over and look through and see, okay, well, this relates to that on the character sheet. So maybe hour and a half-ish to kind of pick up. I probably could have spent more time, so I had less flipping back and forth while running it. But um, So the gist of the game is that you're a cable of adepts and avatars, which are minor checkers in the occult underground. Uh, You hear word from a mutual friend that someone very important to keeping the peace in your city has gone missing. Sure, people go missing all the time, but this woman, Maria, is a Van Helsing. If she's dropped off the radar, who knows what kind of mess she's gotten herself into. Essentially, the game is set in modern-day, current time, and it basically assumes that everyday, mundane, normal thing, no one believes in magic. That's just silly. But there are people in the police force and the firefighters and the paramedics in general that know magic and the occult really do exist and they protect everyone else from that. Um, Everyone that knows that magic exists and is protecting other people are broken people. Something bad has happened to them to realize that there is magic in the world. Um, So you're not playing the most stable of people but you're also not playing deprived psychos. You're, You're playing damaged goods but you're still altruistic and wanting to help out. So think of a cop that's seen too much violence, but they're not burnt out. You're playing those kind of people. I had, like I said, a couple really interesting players. I'm really glad a lot of you were interested in the game to begin with. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to run it today. Um, As players, how easy do you think the rules were to pick up? Not too difficult. Um, uh, I know two of you at least had a little familiarity with a previous editions. Yeah, I played, I think, first edition before, but yeah, even even with that you know, previous uh, you know, experience, mm-hmm. you know, you know, by and large, the, you know, the rules are fairly straightforward. They've got just enough complexity to allow some, some variation in there while still giving some challenge. Okay. But I know my wife has not had any experience, so she might yeah. be the better person. This is the first time I've ever played this uh, style of game from this type of game format. Okay. I really liked it. It was easy to figure out once I was able to figure out the tracks and how they worked mm-hmm. and how everything fit. Mm-hmm. It made sense. It's it was kind of weird to not be like, oh look, I have to take drive and other things like that. <laughs> it, it's it's right. a much smoother form. A little more abstract um, in some areas. Yeah, it, right. it lets you uh, do a lot of role playing if you want to do a lot of role playing. Okay, I liked it. Yes, first and second versions of Unknown Armies did have a stat 
like body, soul, and stuff like that. And your skills were based off of those. Okay. This one, every skill is based off of the hardened meter or your, your stress your tracks. stress check. So those um, those stress tracks are what drive your statistics, which makes it much more interesting. Like so you're not just you, min maxing and so mm-hmm. everything. It's fluid and it changes yes. as you progress during even. That's that more adventure. interesting than having a stat that you can always depend on being this. So value. I do want to point out that this dice only uses two d10 percentile dice. Um, one of the interesting mechanics that got me interested in it um, is that if you are using one of your three passions or your obsession, you get to do something called flip-flop. You can basically swap your tens and ones digit. Ones digit. So if you roll a 53, that may fail, but if you're using one of those two things, you can then flip it and a 35 will succeed. Oh, like in my this, 90. Right, 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 right. Yeah, in this, so, and in this game, it is good for the uh, listeners to know correct. that generally the lower rolls are going to have the better chance chances. to succeed. Correct. Correct. Um, Alright, so what did you guys think? It came with four pregens. Um, what, two of them were called avatars and two of them were called adepts. Essentially an avatar has more magical abilities and can, or has less magical abilities but can use them more freely because they don't have to spend anything to use them versus an adept has wider range of magical abilities but they have charges so they have a limited number of times they can cast these different things yeah for me really the difference in them become yeah, boils down to the flavor of how they are the mm-hmm. avatars they yeah. seek to embody an ideal you know and that's where they get their power from and know, yeah, knowing that about the setup you know, adds a lot to them yeah you know, the the other straight up magicians they're following some other kind of weird obsession, like right. my character. So they're was not a, just magic casters. Yeah. Yours, for example. Yeah. Mine, yeah, mine drew his yeah, power off of his obsessive lore and knowledge of movies. So things that play into that kind of trope, yeah, or where he can steal a little, you know, little magic from the zeitgeist and right. yeah, and the collective consciousness and cause that to happen. Right. Where versus the other uh, magician guy was uh, Fulminaturgy. Fulminaturgy. Yeah. Which was more about... uh, Gunplay. Gunplay and guns. Not necessarily just gunplay, but it was also on the status that, that... that gunplay or having a gun right. confers upon you. Right. So being an authoritative figure. Yes, so right. his was all based on, you know, standing alone, being the, the focus and being above someone versus, right. you know. Yeah. The person so. with the gun is the person in charge. Serious it's demeanor, you know, steady hands, things that, that in... Now, actually, I'd say more about authority. Correct. You know, the... The tricks of authority and Correct. the power inherent in it. Um, but there's a contrast there. If let's say if somebody was really focused on being an avatar or being an authority, they could even think try to be the authority that the society wants them to be. In this case, they would be an avatar. Right. Or they could be themselves be obsessed in their own okay. mind, and that's what turns you into an adept. <laughs> it's sort of like the outward view because you want to represent what the, the everybody else thinks of versus what you yourself are obsessed by and which people just think you're a little bit off because you're obsessed by it. <laughs> and one thing I liked about the previous uh, 
edition that I played under. Is uh-huh. it had? You know, I'm not sure about the new edition, but I would assume that that it also has this. There were ways to to kind of create your own obsession or that is done in character avatar. creation correct yeah. yes you would create your own character they yeah, do so not give the rules set classes. correct they give you a brief description of what the obsessions and uh, passions are in here and they tell you this is what they kind of mm-hmm. do but they don't go into character creation in the free rpg day version um, as far as the character sheets go, they look different than a normal character sheet because you see these tracks and you don't see numbers, a lot of numbers. You see it's, it's all set and then you have relationships. So at first you look at it and you're like, I don't know how to read this. But when you get some of those rules explained to you, it, 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 it comes quickly together quickly. Yeah. So, like um, on mine, I'm, I'm an archetype. I'm a warrior, so I am an avatar. Mm-hmm. But it's cool because like I have taboos, symbols. So... Helmets, blood stains, and blood stains and fire set her off or boost her up. Right. Which is really cool. And she's an exterminator. (laughs) So she exterminates bugs and pests of of all kinds. kinds. Right. What did you guys think of the adventure Maria in three parts? I really liked it. (laughs) It had that definite weird vibe to it that Unknown Armies is really known for. Okay. I'm glad you didn't tell us what it was called at the beginning, because I would have gone, oh, okay, well, this makes sense. And we would have, you know, it was more fun to be like, wait, there's how many of them? It wasn't overly complex, which is good for for a module design for for an event like this, but it had enough uniqueness to to let people really kind of wonder what's going on, and then as they start to follow the trail, start to put it together. And then really run with it. Yeah. And once you get to the conclusion... It gave you enough openness yeah. that you still got to choose which way you were going to go, but it didn't say railroad you into saying, you need to go to point A, B, and C in this order. It's like, yeah. well, there's A, B, C, and D. Where do you want to go? Yeah. But, you know, but the more important thing for me on this was it left enough mystery while giving you know, just the right amount of clues to It was very well written. It, it really impressed me with its writing. Um, I originally picked up this because it was from Atlas Games, and I like other Atlas Games, role-playing games. I had no idea what Unknown Armies was. When I started to read it, by page three, I told John, I was like, it's I got think... terrific flavor. <laughs> right. I think I want to pick up the base book. So, so that kind of leads us into the next question. Did this scenario and adventure make you interested enough to check out the full game? For me, yes. the answer is very much yes. Obviously, two of you already knew about it, so yeah. I, one mentioned that he kickstarted originally. I, I'm one of the participants, one of the uh, participants in the Kickstarter so. for third edition. So I've, I've known about the game for a while. <laughs> when I heard this at Marie in three parts, it reminded me of a first edition uh, adventure. I think it's like the introductory adventure at the very end of first edition, which is. I, I know it's a male name. I can't remember what it, I'm going to call it. Bruce, Bruce in three parts. Okay, okay. And it did, uh, okay. This is I, I get an idea, but I'm not going to say a word. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and you? It's one of those that that yeah, it's going to have to have the right GM to really be able to build a good long campaign. Right. Out of. It's definitely a communal type game. Yeah. You should build your characters the right together. G- yeah. If you can get the right GM for it right. and the right group of players, it's one that you're going to be able to just craft really interesting stories with it's things that you're going to remember for some good you know, years to come I'd play another one shot from them right off the bat I would definitely um, and I'd like to see 
a longer version of the game because there's so much fun you could have with these characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I can definitely see, depending on if you did archetype or adapt, as to you know how you'd want. There is build. a third type actually oh. called gutter mag uh, gutter magic person. Uh, they didn't make any pregens for that, and basically, it's one trick pony type people that they know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I will say, like I said, yes, for me, it intrigued me enough. It actually made me not want to read the next one that I set up to run for this week, for the, for today. But, you yeah, know, but it, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty nice. If you're a fan of, of urban fantasy, especially uh, things so, with a more dystopic line, this is going to draw you in. I'm going to make a mention here. If you're familiar with Dresden Files... It's not a fate system, so like I said, it's not as open-ended and RP-heavy as fate, but it's just enough that it gives you some structure with stat numbers versus saying, oh, well, my Red Witch of the Blue Sea uh, tag, I want to tag that with my, my fate points. You know, you don't. You can use some finagling and convincing to say, "I want to use my identity instead of my skill." Right. If it makes sense, you know, if you can say, "I, of course, I can do this because I'm a pest control person. Yes. I know the right chemicals yes. to create a fumigation bomb." You know. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got those links in there right. so that you can just kind of not be bound to a certain. You know, a certain set of skills right. that are dotted on your sheet. Right. There are be a only more freeform. There are only ten skills, so you kind of have to think. Well, this falls under this kind mm -hmm. of. It, it takes backgrounds right. into a lot more consideration. Right. But right. the other thing that also, really bears mention on this is, as far as style of play, this is not. It is nowhere near the same as your typical D and D game. Right. It's not it's a not hack and slash. It's not high fantasy. It's not. You know, there aren't these gleaming heroes. Everyone's a damaged person. You've got to be willing to dive into that role play space of, of a little dark and dingy, not necessarily vile. Right. Though that enters play on the uh, depending on, on the, the group on the, via, on the villain has, side. Right. It also but, depends on what the group agrees to. Yeah. What is the safe zone as far as that goes? So again, this was Unknown Armies Maria in Three Parts, the free RPG 2018 offering by Atlas Games. Thank you guys for playing. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Had a great time. Hey, this is Toast. Um, go ahead and leave a Swarmcast a message. Remember our number, area code 803-470-4439. Maybe we'll use our message on the air. Who knows? Swarmcast Podcast brings you games from around the world. Hola, as they say in some places, and welcome to Games from Around the World. The voices you're hearing on here are not the normal voice, the normal sultry voice that you hear in Games from Around the World. It's uh, me, John. And me, Calvin. That's right. Calvin, this is your first time being on a Games from Around the World segment, isn't this, it? This is my first time for being on a Games from Around the World segment. That's wow. true. All right. Well, let me let me kick these these guests that we were going to have off here. Let's get somebody better. Since this is your first time on this one. Let's yeah, we got to go for the gold, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, these uh, Tales from the Loop guys, they can... Whatever. <laughs> eh, I got a Netflix show. Yeah, whatever. We've had them on before. Who cares? Um, Tim could talk to them. I'm just kidding. They're, they're, uh. they're probably good guys. I don't know. I've never talked to them. But... 
<laughs> all, all joking aside, we have with us, joining us via the magic of the internet, we have Ed Jallet. Ed, how's it going? I'm, I'm not going to say hola. Fair warning. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say hi, everyone. Well, hi, everyone, because that's, you know, kind of my standard cadence. Ed, Hi everyone. Yeah, Ed, you've been on the show before, but for our new, for any new listeners, uh, first off, hello, new listeners. How's it going? Yeah. <laughs> um, Ed, you are with Shades of Vengeance. In fact, you're the head honcho of that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, I, I prefer, I prefer lead game creator, but uh, head honcho is is factually accurate. Yeah, I mean, I mean. We've got a great team, and and someone's got to someone's got to lead them, someone's got to facilitate for them, and uh, and that tends to end up being me quite a lot of the time. <laughs> El jefe. El jefe. <laughs> if he's not going to say hola, he's definitely yeah, not going to say el jefe. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So <laughs> the boss. I might avoid it. Oh my gosh! So <laughs> before we completely drive Ed off, which which would be no mean feat, I'm sure. <laughs> so Ed, a lot of the games that we've had you on here to talk about before have been from your era line of games. Uh, in fact, those who played in the in e- either of the Pharaoh, RPG Pharaohs Challenge that we've run at um, several different conventions have played in some of these these era line of games and right now you're in the middle of a kickstarter for a new one which era game is this one this is era the chosen and it's it's actually one that i've been working on for two years sort of behind the scenes it's finally got to the point where it's pretty close to ready and uh, and i decided to bring it up to kickstarter it's a little different to any of the other games that we've done before but if i was to pick one that it's most similar to i'd say probably era survival meets era the consortium oh see i, um, I actually got to play the consortium that's that that was fun okay. i enjoyed that one so i mean I've, I've spoken to john about era the consortium many times before and I'm sure that anyone who picks up any of my games will will realize that Era the Consortium is is kind of my favorite of the games I've created. But even then, you know, it it can't scratch every single itch. You know, I I had things that I wanted to do that that don't fit into the world of Era the Consortium quite so well. And this is one of them. I wanted to do something that gave, instead of just sci-fi time periods, and and Era the Consortium provides very many of those, um, I don't do a lot of historical stuff. And a big part of that is because I don't have the expertise to do it alone. I'm not particularly a student of history, and, uh, and there are very, very large gaps in my knowledge. So I was lucky enough to be joined by a very talented individual, J.A. Cummings. I uh, Actually, this project was the first one she worked on in the role-playing game industry. She went on to work with uh, James Gantry from Rogueblade. Uh, she, uh, she contributed to Ghost Ops and a few other games. But, uh, you know, she started with this. And um, she, sort of, she sort of gave me the push I needed in the right direction. We worked together to uh, sort of form the way that the three eras were going to feel in this game. Okay. Now, I know that you, you said this is kind of like a an interesting combination of Era Consortium and Era Survival. I know Consortium is, is definitely the, the sci-fi space epic, space opera yeah, type. Yeah. And Chosen, or not Chosen. Survival. Uh, survival, which was featured in one of our RPG uh, Ferris Challenge, is, is well, Survival pretty I mean, much tells yeah. you everything you want to <laughs> yeah, know. That one. But yeah, the, so the survival chosen. horror game, the, the game is all about, you know, Era Survival is all about limited resources, you know, uh, how, how do you survive against an impossible foe, you know, when you only have three bullets in your gun? What do you do then? <laughs> it was sort of very, like, I wanted to get a Resident Evil feel for it, you know, the, the, the better Resident Evil games, where you really do run out of ammo, and it's not just a shoot-up. Right, yeah. So, so, but The Chosen, obviously it doesn't, that doesn't, like, scream space opera. I mean, like, the... 
the no. title doesn't give that away. So what is what is the uh, no. the background for for the chosen? So in Era the Chosen, there is an invasion going on that that humans are not aware of as a general rule. That there are a bunch of creatures from a parallel universe who can't exist in our universe. But there's a bridge domain between the two of them, which is known as the Lost Lands. Now, they can exist in our universe for sort of five minutes or so, which is plenty of time for them to grab people off the street. And, uh, you know, it, as as it begins back in sort of the Renaissance eras, you know, you, you have a lot of missing people. It, it takes a very long time for them to figure out that, that this is what's actually going on. These uh, these creatures from this dark and dying universe uh, as sort of coming across and trying to trying to figure out a way to enter our universe. They are, you know, huge, you know, they're biologically superior in every way. And they are attempting to escape, you know, their universe actually dying. In a big way, this 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 game was influenced by uh, by Doctor Who and kind of I wanted to capture that kind of horror in that it's horror that is, you know, really, really terrible and, and people die. Okay. But so, it's mostly terrifying because you don't understand what's going on. Okay. Right? That's, and that's, when you start that's to understand what's going on, it's less scary. Right, you know? right. And, and there are a lot of Doctor Who episodes in the, in the Doctor Who reboot from, you know, from, from recent years that sort of play on that idea. Right. Oh, I agree. Yeah, when you, when you when you said when you said Doctor Who, that's immediately what I thought too. Was uh, there are so many episodes where it's just you don't yeah, know. Yeah, you have no clue what's going. And, and on. the Doctor may know, but he's not readily telling you anything. Or heck, some a lot of times he doesn't even know. Yeah, exactly. And he's trying to find out. Um, the uh, one that comes to mind that's a brilliant example is the one where the clockwork robots are roaming around on the uh, on the ship. Oh, yeah. uh, trying to kill Madame de Pompadour. Oh, yeah. Right? right. And okay. those those robots are seriously, seriously scary, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then when suddenly you realize that they're just clockwork robots and that's what's going on here, and, and they're harvesting parts from things to replace circuits, you're kind of like, okay, well, that's still disgusting, but it's a lot less scary now. Right. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of feel I wanted to get, you know. Through the through the eras, you know, era, era the chosen in the in the Renaissance era, the first era, they treat it, you know, as if it's supernatural. You know, they can't explain it. You know, there are just these creatures that appear, and we just have to fight them. In the second era, you know, it's sort of like it's the industrial revolution. They're beginning to explain things. You know, the the concept that maybe there are multiple universes, and that's what's going on. You know, the concept that oh, electricity doesn't work in the lost lands. Well, maybe it's related to that, and you know that. All this kind of stuff starts happening and they start to uncover what's going on. And then by the time you get to the modern era, you know, they, they have an understanding of what's happening and why. Um, and they've been able to actually even build a, an architectural, I suppose, monument would be the word, which actually focuses all of the portals. So they open in one place and <laughs> Ananasi invasions can be repelled. Yeah. At that point, it's it. At that point, it kind of makes me think of um, some of the later XCOM games. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, and Turok was a bit of a was a bit oh, of a, a okay. an influence as well. Um, I've been a big fan of Turok for a long time, and I always thought that there was stuff that like you could role play. You could role play well in that universe. You just need to do some tweaks, right? Yeah. And 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 I wanted to get a little bit of that possibility that you could that you could have that feeling because. Turok again is is the kind of horror that I associate with. You run around the corner, and it's not really a jump scare. There are jump scares, but it's not really a jump scare. It's the fact that this thing is so huge and so terrifying. There's no way you could face it down, just just on your own. Right. Okay. You know, 
and, and that's that's kind of that's something that I always got from talk two, talk three particularly. So and then the, and then you know you have to overcome this anyway because you're the only person who's there to do it. Gotcha. So is the is the the level of mystery and terror really kind of dependent on which of these which, which of these time yeah which time frames you're, you're playing in. which area you're playing in? To a degree, yes, but um, it, it's made very clear all along that humanity doesn't understand everything about the Ananasi. What what happens is as as human technology progresses, obviously the Ananasi are gradually beaten back. It doesn't matter how biologically superior you are. If you have, you know, explosive shells firing from automatic weapons, you're going to be caused, you know, it's still going to cause you problems, pr- pretty much no matter how biologically superior you are. So the Ananasi in every era begin bringing new new weapons to the fight, new biologically evolved weapons. You know, okay. they, they start with sort of some basics, you know, big strong ones and sort of human shaped ones that are a bit more intelligent and so on. And then they bring in sort of huge towering things and you know, sort of larger creatures to, to, to sort of face the industrial revolution because, you know, even an elephant gun isn't going to stop these. Right. And then, uh, you know, over time, you know, in the, in, the, um, in the modern era, they begin to learn more insidious tactics. You know, they, they, they start focusing on infiltration. They start focusing on um, biological weapons that just um, consume flesh. Hmm. Um, you know, and they start deploying. Uh, they just start that. deploying these things all over the place. I, I've actually just been playing a session. I've just come off playing a session, which will go up hopefully on YouTube before too much longer. And uh, and you know, this this group ran into a new kind of Ananasi that that has never been encountered before, which which somehow managed to possess one of their team members uh, oh. and, and completely control him. <laughs> so what do you do about that? I mean, I mean, how, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you handle that? When, when this ghostly being can just enter your teammate and, and take him over. Mm, creepy. And the only way it comes out is if you kill him. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you, you know, I, what, what do you do in that situation? So, so yeah, I, w- I would say that the horror... I mean, I know, what, I know what my fall. jerk friends would yeah, do. I was going to say, I, I know what, I know what our group would do. They would just, yeah, they would just be like, yeah, they'd be like, sorry, John, you're going to have to make a new character. <laughs> well, the, the problem is that then it just moves into the next character in your group, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yeah, okay. And then, and then the group gradually kill each other one by one until there's only one left, and that one's not going to shoot himself because it's in control of them, and then it has what it wants. So, so yeah, I, I think the mode of horror changes. I think you get more supernatural horror earlier on, but there's there's opportunity for other things as well. We uh, we actually wrote a fiction story, and I, I loved doing this. We wrote a fiction story that was kind of Princess Bride-esque. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, there are all these mysterious creatures running around, and I'm going to be a swashbuckling hero that just goes out and, 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 and fights my way through and saves the princess. <laughs> You know, it's absolutely possible to play that kind of game, you know. Especially and, during, like, Industrial Revolution period or something. Yeah, well, like well, or the Renaissance or, era. Yeah, still. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Um, and then, you know, you can have mad science kind of horror, you know, in, in, in the Industrial Revolution era. Because they have access to... So the... Um, the oh, eras work okay. the way they do, and they're, they're very much more compressed than they are in real history. I could see that this lens could lend to all sorts of uh, interesting stories and such. Yeah, I, I could see that there's a lot of branching, a lot of different directions. So, really. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's something that I love doing in my games. As as you guys, well, repeat listeners will know, John knows, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I love to give, like, really, really wide scopes of opportunity 
tell people, okay, here's here's a universe, here's a construct. Go play. You know, mm-hmm. show me something that I haven't thought of. Right. So the game is called Era of the Chosen. Does that That's mean right. that the player characters are are then the the titular chosen? Chosen. Does that actually potentially? Or, or what is but, what is um, the I meaning actually, behind that? Yeah. So so the chosen are the individuals who are able to see the Ananasi. Only about zero point one percent of the population can. Okay. Um, and most of those it's even scarier. belong yeah. to one of five families. Yeah, I mean, the the opening fiction uh, right below what is Era of the Chosen on the Kickstarter, you know, it's the, it's the crawling feeling on the back of the neck, the insistent niggling feeling that we're being followed. It's the, it's the feeling that there are eyes in the dark watching, waiting. In that moment, you know, you, you just know that there's a clawed hand reaching towards the back of your head. And and we, you know, we stay still and try and ignore the feeling or we whirl around and we, we look, but there's nothing there. You know, we, we laugh, we pass an off as, you know, being paranoid, imagination, and we just go on with our lives. But what if there really was something there and you just couldn't see it? Or even worse, what if you could see it? <laughs> hmm. That's that's kind of the high level sort of the, the high level feel of this game. And and you, you're asking if you play as the chosen. So, yeah, most people will, I'm sure. Mm hmm. Well, normally, I think most people will play as the Chosen, and fighting fighting large, scary creatures with pikes is no joke. <laughs> you know, if, if a non-Chosen is grabbed and pulled into the, you know, into the universe of uh, the Lost Lands, um, they just can't see anything. It's like they've gone blind. They aren't capable of perceiving it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they've gone blind. They've gone deaf. They, they, they can't understand what's going on. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, you know, it, like they have no ability to perceive. <laughs> hmm. Oh my goodness! Huh? Well, that that adds a really interesting uh, additional layer of just terror to the right, whole thing. Right? Because I was I was sitting here thinking, like, I could see me playing in, in a group where everybody was playing chosen, just being the one guy who can't see the stuff. Because yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> Why do you guys until keep shooting you, at until that until wall you get over pulled there? <laughs> into that other dimension? And you're just like, oh well, I see nothing. I don't even know what you're talking. About. I got nothing. <laughs> so these, um, I hope I'm saying it right, the Anunnaki. Uh, it sounds like they can have all manner of different forms and functions. And oh, such. definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there are very many different kinds of Ananasi. Um, there's a bestiary in the book, um, okay. and I wouldn't call it exhaustive, but it is fairly extensive. Uh, you know, there, there are quite a few quite a few creatures in there for, you know, a GM to choose from. Some of them only appear in some eras, obviously, like the uh, the ethereal that I referred to earlier. They only really appear in the last era. Uh, the swarm that I referred to, the, the, the flesh-eating things, they only appear in the last era as well. But many of them appear in all of the eras, and uh, they all have different abilities. So let's talk about Kickstarter aspect of this. Um, sure. Because I know that's probably the f- uh, first and foremost um, on your mind right now and probably has been for a few days and will be for a few more days. And uh, few When more you days. say a few days, if you mean a few weeks, then <laughs> yeah, yes. when exactly <laughs> When exactly does this Kickstarter end? That's that's the, the So this one runs story. until September the 16th, uh, which is Sunday, and it ends at 9.30 p.m. BST. That's uh, British summertime because we do daylight saving time over here. And um, uh, that is actually about half an hour before I go to bed. So I have the time to – because I get up pretty early every morning. And, and I'll have the time to uh, to sort of write an update saying, yay, we did it. And here's what we actually unlocked. And here's a little bit of info about what you can expect in the near future and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so that's why that ends then. But uh, that's going to be you know EST or EDT, I, sh- I should say. It will be about 4.30 p.m. So – yeah, I mean it's 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 got a few weeks left. It's got three weeks left. Okay, and 
um, as of right now, as of this recording, the the Kickstarter has already funded. So everything right now is possible stretch goals, things like oh, yeah. that. This is this is anybody listening to this. This is a, a great time to get in on this. Um, yeah. Um, so we've so already unlocked stuff. one stretch goal, even. Oh. And uh, as 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 of the recording, we're actually halfway to the second. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen some great progress. Uh, I'm I'm very very honored to have been chosen as a project we love by Kickstarter. I, it's I, the first I time I've ever had that for a role playing <laughs> game. So Era the Chosen what? was chosen by... <laughs> wow, yeah, um, that was totally deliberate. Yep, <laughs> definitely, 100%. Yeah, we, we, we were selected as a project we love. Um, it's the first time this ever happened to one of our role-playing games, um, and only the second time we've ever had a project we love. Wow, congratulations. Um, wow. So a uh, project we love, for anyone who doesn't know, and is a little more old-fashioned like I am with Kickstarter, uh, is the same thing as a staff pick. It's, it's what staff picks became. Okay. Ah, gotcha. Well, that's very. And cool. uh, I'm I'm running the uh, I'm running the Kickstarter in dollars so that it's a little easier for US backers. I, I think there is genuinely every possibility this becomes our most successful Kickstarter game ever, which would be fantastic. So, you know? what what exactly is the first stretch goal? The first stretch goal that we've unlocked is actually a a campaign that will go out to everyone in digital format. Um, it's a two session campaign set in the modern era, and it pits the chosen against some of the greatest minds of Erebus. Is what the uh, stretch goal says i don't want to give too much away on the recording because i'm actually running an era of the chosen session uh campaign uh which will actually cover a version of how this story might play out um and that's actually uh, that's actually the one i mentioned before it'll be going up on youtube uh during the kickstarter and um it'll as i say it'll play out a version it's very much based on the player's activities and I don't know what they're going to do when we actually get to the crisis point in the choice. And it looks like looks like the other um, some of the other stretch goals are going to be even more. Uh, so the next two are yeah are also campaigns. Uh, the the next one is uh, set at the start of the Ananasi War. You know I wanted to do something that was that was in each era, and the and the, the third stretch goal therefore is in the uh, in the middle era, the the if you like. Um, industrial revolution era and then the next stretch goal is actually to put those into a book Ooh, that'd be very nice. uh, that'd be, that'd so be i will nice. put those into a book and i will uh, i'll get a new couple of illustrations and i will uh, and i will uh, make those books available for people awesome. and then beyond that so far it's a mystery i i made this setting because i've wanted to for a long time and i i think that you know about two years ago my skills reached the point where i where i was feeling able to do it you know we, we've got some really interesting new rules in this that um they are very very subjective for the gm okay um, about when they apply and when they don't um and it means that they are very uh that they're very very driven by the narrative that's going on oh i like that that's very cool. So you mentioned you mentioned the rules, and I know with with each of the different era systems, there's there tends to be something that that might be a rule that's that's kind of a uh, unique to it, or something that fits more with that. So yeah. um, what special kind of rule things does Era Chosen bring into to its setting? So to anyone who's familiar with Era the Consortium and Era Survival, multiple ones of our games contain specialties. And Era the Chosen does contain specialties. Many of these specialties are actually unique to a clan. So uh, which clan you choose can define what you can do with your character. So that's that's quite interesting. And uh, it was fun to make up some new specialties that... that you know, only really applied to that clan in that situation and, and wouldn't make sense to anyone else. Then there are the terror and trophies rules. And and those guys, um, you know, that that's all about... The, the Ananasi are terrifying. You know, this is a horror game at the end of the day. And the terror rules define, I'd almost say, a potential descent into catatonia, almost. You know, uh, 
you can run into situations so often that 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 just you know they 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 you know fill you with such terror that you are not capable of dealing with them and you freeze in place. Now, something already exists along those lines in near the consortium and others: uh, horror. And uh, I, I sort of there's sort of the terror rules are sort of an expanded horror mechanic that will grow as your character experiences the war against the Ananasi. And the idea is that you, as you encounter these situations and you fail or you don't succeed as well as you possibly could have, you will gradually build up things you are terrified of. For example, um, uh, in the game I was just playing, one of the characters is now very, very afraid of his teammates acting in a strange way. You know, acting out of character, <laughs> acting oddly. Because they were possessed by one of these ethereal beings. Right. Okay, and and anyone doing that is going to cause him to just freeze in place, and and sort of he's going to immediately jump to the conclusion that that you know the these people have been possessed by one of these creatures, and uh, you know he's going to be frozen in place. He's going to have no idea what to do. He's going to have to overcome a certain kind of horror check in order to not just just collapse into a ball. I kind of feel like um, some of my characters in a lot of the games, people have that that same effect. They have that same effect on people. Like you have that effect you, on people. Yeah. Like like oh, you show up and then they just freeze. Yeah, and they're collapse. just like uh, he's acting <laughs> weird again. Is something wrong? Yeah, and 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 the, the thing about the 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 terror rules in this is, um, as I say, that there's sort of they're just building on the horror rules that already exist. So they're not massively jarring and they fit in very nicely with the uh with any of the games i mean in theory you could add them to any game at all and as as you already know john all of our rules are are modular so you can always add if you want to add durability into era of the consortium uh well go play revival but um you absolutely <laughs> can do that from era survival um if you want to uh, you know play an era of the consortium game where you're acting a bit like liars and you're going and you're you're telling of your amazing exploits in the resistance you can just combine that rule set you know <laughs> i think, I think you can liars, could, this liars could easily fit within a lot of these rules within anything <laughs> a lot of i these agree genres i think I, I agree entirely and um yeah and and again the 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 terror rules could fit in any any other game and uh, in order to balance that, what I've done is I've created the trophy rules. Now, trophies happen when you overcome a challenge, you know, a real genuine challenge. And it's up to the GM, of course, when trophies are awarded and what they do. I awarded one trophy in the, in the game I just finished recording. Um, it was to a sniper who worked hard and, and put effort in specifically to figuring out how to shoot into a grapple without hurting his teammates. Because uh, they were be, being eaten by two-meter-sized giant worms at the time. <laughs> um, that's another kind of Ananasi. You know, they burrow underground and, and sort of grab you when you're least expecting it. Hmm. You know, I gave him a, a, a worm tooth, which represented the time that he perfectly missed his teammate and 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 destroyed the worm with one shot. And um, what what that tooth lets him do is basically, while he can still injure his teammates, the kill threshold on teammates is removed when he fires into a grapple. That so is, that's, no, that's that's really cool. really powerful. Yeah, that yeah. Is. I mean, it's really really powerful. But it's only in that specific scenario that it applies. And it, right. it, it came from the fact that a he put the effort in, b he was successful on the roll, and c. You know, he went, oh, wow, I did this. You know, I, I saved your life. That's you know, and, and, and yeah. that came from the confidence that he now knows he can make that shot. 
You know, you cannot kill someone. That's a very neat um, reward mechanic yeah. for for a GM and their player to to like well reward their players for doing something right and actually know, super awesome and yeah. actually putting that that, like that, that, yeah. that that thought in and the effort. I like that. Yeah, I like, I, that I, I like to encourage. I like to encourage players to be narrative. You know, I mean that's that's really what it's all about. I mean, if you're just sat there going, "Yeah, I shoot the guy. Yeah, I shoot the guy again. Yeah, I shoot the guy again." It's going to get boring pretty quick, you know? You got it's, that it's all about just shoot a guy trophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give a trophy for that. You know, I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't give one for that. I'm expecting people to go out there and actually put some thought and effort in. And, and one of the things that really helps with that is the fact that Era of the Chosen is quite lethal. In fact, during the fight where, where that guy earned it, everyone else was knocked unconscious and was beating out. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, like wow. all of the rest of the party were down. So the stakes were, um, were really were, high to yeah, begin with. Yeah. We're extremely high. Yeah. And, and, and you know, he, he went, okay, well, I've got no option. I'm going to risk this. I'm going to put, you know, he, he ended up rolling intelligence and gunnery uh, rather than perhaps the more standard wits and gunnery because he was going, okay, well, I'm going to line up my shot perfectly so it does damage to it without hurting her. Okay. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. And, and the player the player put the work in. And in my opinion, if the player puts the work in, they deserve a reward. I like it. I like that a lot. So it's worth mentioning that on the Kickstarter, um, if you're curious to know more, there is a uh, a character creation video, and there's also an Era of the Chosen combat example video. Wow. Where I use the character I just created to actually stand up against an Ananasi, and I just demonstrate a fight very quickly and how the mechanics work. So if you if you want to see the mechanics in action, really really good way of doing that. Also, uh, obviously this this uh, session that I've just referred to, I've actually I recorded it, and uh, I'm going to be editing it together to be a bit more coherent in places, and um, and then I'm going to be putting it up on our YouTube channel and on the Kickstarter. So um, keep an eye out, and uh, and you'll be able to you'll be able to find a lot of information about how the game works and how it feels. How are we going to be able to find this playthrough footage that you you just recorded and you're planning on posting on YouTube? So, yeah, I mean that's a good question. There are, there are two ways. Um, first of all, we do have a YouTube channel, and uh, nowadays I actually. Um, I actually put up videos fairly regularly because we also run a Era of the Consortium uh, regular video cost. And um, yeah, so um, it's called Stiletto Unit 447CE because it is based after the sacrifice that Stiletto Unit make at the end of Era of the Consortium. Spoilers. Oh my goodness. So uh, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of fun on that podcast. It's 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 really good fun. You know, I've I've been able to end pretty much every episode with with us sort of joking around and laughing. You know, it's it, it you know we we have a story and we're telling it, but you know there, there's a lot of levity in there, and 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 people are people are definitely having a good time, and I think it's a really good representation of how easy it is because we've also got some experienced role players, we've got some newbie role players, you know, and we've got some people who sort of sit in the middle. So no matter where you are in terms of you know how well you know role playing, um, I think you can pick up here of the consortium and enjoy it, and I think that this this podcast is a really good example of that. And then on top of that, you know, I'm, I'm posting videos about Era of the Chosen. There's some stuff on there already. We're also doing audio stories of Era of the Chosen, uh, which uh, the first of which has already appeared on the um, on the YouTube channel. And the second of which uh, is going to be going up as soon as I finish the video editing or it. Um, unfortunately, I had to I had to stop to, to run the Era of the Chosen game and then and then come and talk to you guys. So it's going to be tomorrow for me now. But, um, you know, there's there's more material going up on there all the time. You can also find it on the Kickstarter, of course, for Era of the Chosen. Um, and you can also find it on our Facebook because we always try to link it on the Facebook as well. We'll definitely put links to the the Kickstarter and to um, to the the chosen Facebook group and to the Shades of Vengeance. Uh, 
perfect yeah i mean that that'll help people so they don't have to dig <laughs> yeah. yeah i definitely look forward to i want to give them this one a shot it sounds sounds very interesting uh thank you very much um i i as i say i i really enjoyed making this one i enjoy making every game and era the consortium holds a special place in my heart because i am at essence a sci-fi guy but working together with with um, J.A. Cummings on this, and then, uh, you know, she, she left the project after she'd done some of the initial foundation stuff. You know, then continuing to develop it, I worked with some great people. Um, Darren Pierce, uh, who's more recently been the uh, the lead writer on uh, Judge Dredd, worked on this with me. And he, he also worked on Everything Power, but that actually came after his work on this. So this was the first project we worked on together. I worked with uh, with Jennifer Martin, who uh, worked with me on Era Survival, Era the Consortium, Era the Empowered, and so on. You know, I've worked with her on a number of games. And uh, and I worked with Mikhail uh, Gruli, uh, who was the artist for Era Survival as well, which is probably why kind of the art style is, is going to look quite similar. But I thought it really, really suited this particular game very, very well. So do you have anything else that you're maybe looking towards starting another Kickstarter soon, you know, after this one hits? I am, actually. Oh. It's funny you should ask that, because that's that's usually a fairly safe question that the answer is yes. <laughs> um, I always have a lot going on, and uh, I actually have quite a few projects going on at the moment. So in the immediate future, I am going to be putting out a Kickstarter in sort of mid-October, which is going to be for a card game. Oh. A third card game. This one is actually based in the era survival universe, and I, I I kind of finished the prototype a while ago, and and I wanted to playtest it a few times, um, but the playtests have been absolutely fantastic without without fail. So the idea is that um you actually play as four, well up to four people who are trying to maintain a colony in the world of era survival, which is uh, obviously rather difficult, and um uh, so the game is called Era Survival Colony. And um, you you have to face the you know the the possibility that you'll have drought or famine or infected will come or raiders will come and so on and so on and you have to survive a certain length of time in order to win. Huh. Okay. It's a fully cooperative game uh, that works from uh, one to four players. So one person control all four, or you can have two people, or three people, or or, or four people. And everyone has something to do. It's sort of like, um, actually, some of the people who played it compared it to Dead of Winter, but without the backstabbing bit. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it's sort of like it's it's an actual work together to survive. To me, it actually echoes more of the XCOM board game. Ah, okay. Uh, where, where kind of everyone has their own role. You know, you, you have a person who's the recruiter, and the recruiter gets to assign people to the new places and, and, and choose where they go for the first year that they're there. And then the defender gets to sort of rally your forces and make sure that you're able to defend, you know, uh, against the, the various threats that attack you. And then the salvager will go out and, and his people will salvage equipment and you'll get equipment cards that you can then use um and then finally the 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 leader of the colony gets to reassign everybody at the end of the year and uh and and sort of also manages the food production yeah i can see where the comparison to the the XCOM game yeah come in. yeah so every, everyone kind of has their own their own role but it all works just on cards so there's no there's no pieces there's no board it's much okay. more portable yeah that'd be good nice little game you can just tuck in your pocket and uh Totally. That's that's yeah. it exactly, and and that was really the aim of what I was going for. I was going for something that that you know can be nice and portable and can be moved around, and uh, you know isn't isn't going to be too hard to to carry around. So yeah, uh, that's um, Era Survival Colony, and then next year, of course, there's the uh, miniatures for Era the Consortium. 
uh, yes. which we've been talking about on our on our Facebook for some time now. But we could probably sit here for for several hours asking you, well, what oh, other stuff? Goodness, do you have? yes. <laughs> what other stuff do you have planned? Um, but I suggest uh, if people want to find out some of the other stuff that Ed said he's had planned, uh, listen to there's there's at least one other show we recorded where I know you mentioned a bunch of stuff that you have much further down uh, <laughs> planned and and um and uh, you know did I? I don't even remember doing that. <laughs> uh, well, or, or maybe you just mentioned it to me. I don't know. I don't remember. Um, yeah, this sounds like a really good thing to to edit out all this me me babbling like an idiot right now. What? No. <laughs> um, that's that's part of the fun, right there. All this stuff sounds really amazing. All of it Ed. does. Yeah. Um, I, I look I look forward to giving this one a shot. We've been talking with Ed Jallet from Shades of Vengeance, uh, primarily about his his current Kickstarter that's going on for. Era of the Chosen, which you guys can go check that out on Kickstarter right now. We're going to have the links to it up on our show notes, um, as well as the links to the, the different Facebook pages. And uh, Shades of Vengeance has got a website. We'll throw that link there, too. Why not? Why not? We, links links for everybody. Just you get a link. Throwing them like glitter. Link. Links for yeah. everyone. <laughs> so, so, Ed... Um, is there anything else you wanna you wanna tell us or leave us with about Era of the Chosen or or any of <laughs> any shades of vengeance vengeancey stuff? Era of the Chosen is a genuine attempt to bring a new kind of dimension to the game. Uh, to, you know, to the Era D10 rule set. The fact that it can be combined into any game means that you can add that horror element, that Doctor Who style horror element, to any game at all. And I think that's a very, very powerful tool for people to use. So I'd strongly recommend you check it out. I really hope that it gets funded to the maximum degree it can, because as I said before, I have a million things I want to do. And uh, and yeah, I just want to say to anyone who does choose to support it, thank you very much. It's you guys who make this possible. And I also want to extend a, a great big thank you to, to John and to Calvin for uh, having me and talking to me uh, so enthusiastically about all this stuff. It is, you know, it's really, really great to be back on the uh, Swarmcast. Reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter, we're a friendly group of people, you know. We we answer whenever we see stuff, and um, you know, I I I I am pretty much the person who does most of the answering. <laughs> so, um, if you have a specific question for me that you didn't get answered in this because you know John or or, or Calvin didn't ask it, then uh, then yeah, I mean, go ahead and ask. I'm I'm around. I'm happy to answer. Yeah, and we probably left out like a bunch like, of well. There's questions. always millions of questions there's... that are never asked. <laughs> never <laughs> enough time, right? And speaking of which, um, looks like we are probably out of time for this segment. Oh, see, it's a segue. Oh, it's a segue. It's a segue. What? And then I point out that it's a segue, which makes it a funny segue. What? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, so again, everyone, go out there and back era the chosen. Check them out. Um, in fact, while you're out there, go and check out check out a lot of the other games by shades of vengeance uh, yeah. and if you're not into role-playing games they've got they've got some card games out there that that are pretty fun as well so check those out it's good stuff i again look forward to it i enjoyed playing in the other ones and uh this one i i just have a feeling i'm gonna this is gonna be right up my alley so yep and there may be some era related stuff in the upcoming rpg pharaohs challenge that's going to be coming out in january at scarab Ooh. Oh, I dropped awesome. Little, I dropped a little hint right there. Swarmcast, I got your number. I'll call you all the time. Area code 803-470-4439. Oh, 
Swancast has board game reviews for you, yeah, you got the good, bad, and other stuff to tell you, so listen up to our board game reviews, you really like it, or I'll make you eat your shoes, <laughs> We're still here at Scarab Gaming Convention 2018, and with me now are a couple other uh, guests who played who played a rather interesting game. I have with me Jenna. Hello. And Preston. Howdy. So, how are you guys doing? You having a good time? Having a great yeah. time so far. Yeah, it's Thank a lot you. of fun. Okay. So, what what game is it that you want to talk with me about today? King of New York. King of New York. Awesome. I've played King of Tokyo. I haven't quite had a chance to play King of New York yet. It uh, has been on the shelfy um, for uh, about a year. <laughs> it's on the shelfy of shame. No longer. <laughs> <laughs> So, why don't you guys tell me something good about King of New York? Well, it had a lot more more depth to it than King of Tokyo. Uh, mm-hmm. King of Tokyo, you're basically either attacking or healing and gaining energy to buy cards. Um, this one had areas where everyone could, could kind of control. Um, there were buildings you can destroy for points. Um, there was army units that may attack you uh, that you can also destroy. Uh, so, a lot more variables than King of Tokyo. Okay. A lot more options, and it was a very quick setup. Um, you could get to playing pretty effectively without having to read too much into the rule book. That's always a, that's always a plus, especially, especially when we're playing with kids. We had three kids oh, that were playing. Oh, okay. So, Day one. <laughs> so, is there anything bad that you uh, can think of that you want to say about King of Tokyo, or excuse me, King of New York? I think I jumped ahead. I said they won. Oh. The kids wiped out the adults. Um, so they had fun. Uh, I thought I had a pretty good strategy going, um, but if you just run and uh, go ahead and, and hit like you do in King of uh, Tokyo, I think that that's something that uh, could be quite effective to take all the other players out quickly. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think so. The dice are a little different, so there's there's more options. So I guess the one negative with that is that it can be harder to kind of go after certain goals uh, mm-hmm. because there's only one icon on the die since they've added several you know there's building destroying icons um, there's unit attacking icons so there's there's less less likely to be able to attack someone in Tokyo and you're kind of I feel like it's more of a luck of the die roll than kind of going after certain tactics okay okay says the one who got the superstar card early in the game yeah but I also was the first one to die Hmm. That's true. It's funny how that works out. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what's something we can put in our other category here for King of New York? I got it right that time. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that so you can destroy buildings for points or for health or for energy, uh, but as soon as you destroy them, they turn into military. So I thought it was an interesting, interesting. element where you're attacking the city, but you're also alerting the military who comes, and you, have to, you can destroy them, but you can't destroy them the same turn they, they come out. So... In the rotation of events, you know, you, these military might attack you for destroying their buildings. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that King of Tokyo, you are either in Tokyo or you're not in Tokyo. Right. You might be in the harbor if you're playing with a lot of people. <laughs> but in King of New York, there's a, a lot of different places that you can go to, which I think added a lot of fun spice to the game. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds that sounds really fun. Um, 
That's it definitely was. one that I want to get get to the table at some point. Well, thank you, Jenna and Preston, for sitting down and talking with me about King of New York. And yeah, thanks for having us. It. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I hope to see you guys around here for the rest of Scarab 2018. Scarab 2018 still going great. We've got people actually pre-regging for next year already, so that's kind of awesome, too. And uh, right now at the, the booth I have with me, I have Joe. How's it going, Joe? Doing pretty well, and I've already pre-registered. Awesome. So have you been having fun at the convention? Actually, it's very good, and we got the new, we're back to the original location, and it's smaller, but I like it. Okay. It's nicer. Well, you're here today because you want to talk about some some games, so we're going to start with uh, Lord of the Fries, I believe is what you said you wanted to start with. Yeah, yeah uh, my name is Joe. It was uh-huh. Lord of the Fries, which has a big zombie on the front. Mm-hmm. Something good. This was a beautiful art, just beautiful, pretty art inside. Okay. It looks like they actually spent money on the art. Sometimes okay. people don't in their cheap games. This is mighty. I forgot the brand, but it was it was done pretty well. And then inside it, you're when you play the game, you're making menus. So you okay. get the ingredients for sometimes it's coffee, desserts, meals, nice. different ingredient cards you mix and match. I really like that. Uh, something bad? Yep. Some of those things were hard to come by and the way you go through is you use your ingredients and then you kind of get down and dirty at the end and you just makes it hard to complete but it wasn't that bad so it's not a, a strong bad okay the other mm-hmm. there were zombies on every card there is nothing <laughs> zombie about the game it could have been called waffle house <laughs> and it could have had pictures of waffle house scenery and it would have been the exact same game there was it was just, I think it was like added zombies because somebody, some producer somewhere said, hey, let's put zombies on it's it. Like, you know what sells? Zombies. Yes, yeah, so it was, so let's that a, was. Let's get some zombies in here. But I enjoyed it. It was a beautiful game. Okay. Well, great. Um, and easy. My kid, I know my kids would like it, so it's easy. So it's easy enough for them to pick up? Yep. Cool. Well, thank you for talking with me about Lord of the Fries. Still here at Scarab Gaming Convention. And I've got a couple people here who want to talk about a game. So I have with me, uh, let's see, it's Michael and Michael Luke. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. All right, I got that right. Woohoo! So what what game what game did you guys finish playing that you want to talk about? Um, more more money. Mo more money. money. More money. Okay, and that's M O W. Yes, like lawnmower. Because you're, really you're doing good. lawnmower business yes. and stuff. So what's something good that you want to say about more money? So it was, it was a lot of fun. The rounds were pretty short. Yeah, that yeah, the rounds were pretty short, and and you got, and you had to like buy like lawnmowers. Mm-hmm. You got to buy like lawnmowers and like little like cards to help you get properties. Okay. Win. Um, is there anything bad that you want to say about that you can say about uh, Mo Money? The rules were a little hard. They were a little complicated at first to get set up. Okay. But once we got into the game, the rules were made much more sense. Okay, so, so, so it played pretty quickly. Yes, the but, rounds but were the, very fast. But the rules were a little hard to pick yes. up at first. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, what's something that, that you could say that might go into our other category here for Mo Money? Well, the game went pretty quickly. You know, my mm-hmm. son and I were able to play um, pretty quickly, and the rounds were, were nice and short, so they kind of kept the attention into the game. Okay. Yeah. And, like, they had little monies that I... That I that you don't usually see in most board games. You like okay. the little tiny monies that yeah. were you had in there, so that was really cool. Okay, that's pretty cool. Well, uh, thank you both for for sitting down here and talking with me about Mo Money here at Scarab Gaming Convention. I hope you have more fun and get to play more games. Excellent. Yeah, we're gonna go play another right now. Awesome. Oh, my-
as I board game reviews from the Swarmcast. If you don't like it, I'm a come over a TikTok. Tail! Tail! <laughs> Toast meant to say tail. Toast. Um, Why do you do that? Oh, yeah. Do you smell something burning? It can only mean one thing! We're cooking... Toast! Ha <laughs> ha! No, it's supposed to be cooking with toast. What? Sheesh. Where? Cooking with toast! Better. Yeah, let's see what's going on over here. Hey, Brooklyn, how's it going? Hi, Toast. Pretty good. How's it going, Toast? Well, you know, I can't complain. I can't complain, which is how you're supposed to say that word. There's an N on the end of it, and sometimes those cobalts leave ends off the end of words. Well, I am going to school, so I'm pretty sure I just learned that. Okay, you just learned that? Yeah, it is the core system, so. Well, that's some fascinating stuff, Brooklyn. But, uh, so, I'm, I'm actually looking for some food. I can find any around here. What, hey, what's that over there? What are you doing? Well. I was making some stuffed mushrooms. Stuffed mushrooms? Wait, oh, okay. What are you stuffing them with? Like, uh, babies and chickens and stuff? Well, I mean, I'm sure you would like that, but I stuff mine with cheese. Cheese? Whoa, back up. So, so explain this whole stuffed mushrooms thing to me. So, we get some nice big portobello mushrooms, mm-hmm. right? And you flip them over and you cut out the stem. Okay. But you don't throw the stem away. What? And you get some cream cheese. Preferably onion and chive. Oh. And mix it with some mozzarella cheese. And then you cut up the stems mm-hmm. and put them in the cheese. And then you stuff the mushrooms and take some bacon and wrap it around. And you can put it in a grill. Oh, I love wrapping myself around bacon. Definitely. Who wouldn't? I mean, I could just go to, go to town on that type of stuff. All right, so you eat all the bacon and then you start up a grill, right? You can put it in a grill. Okay. You can put it in a smoker. Huh. I mean, you can probably cook it in a pan and you can put it in the oven. Oh, I like putting stuff in ovens too. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wait. I think I got some stuff in the oven right now. Oh, no. I should go check that out right now. Yeah, you should probably go make sure it doesn't burn. Okay. Oh, I'm going to just take a couple of these uh, stuffed mushrooms with me. <laughs> Thanks, Brooklyn. You're welcome, Toast. Toast! What are you burning? Everything! <sighs> well, everybody, the show's finally over. That's it. You can go back to your normal life again, though it's probably never going to be the same. You can find the Swarmcast podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Tell us what you think. Heck, give us a good review on either iTunes and Tuned In, Stitcher. Heck, I think we're putting stuff out on YouTube now, if that's kind of your thing. Anyway, subscribe, like, whatever, all through those different guys. Or you can grab the RSS feed from our website, which is Swarmcast podcast.com that's all one word and you can also email us at swarmcast podcast again one word at gmail.com why not or you can leave us a message at area code 803-470-4439 and we'll probably play it on the air if you're lucky maybe (laughs) so until next time keep on gaming and when you think of toast think of me